Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today we're celebrating a book that would change the perception of Iris Murdoch as a philosopher and discussing its legacy 10 years on from publication. It is, of course, Iris Murdoch Philosopher, edited by Justin Brokes, who I'm delighted to have with me today. And the collection features a wonderful lineup of academics, including John Bailey, Peter Conradi, Martha Nussbaum, Larry Blum, Maria Antonaccio, and many more. Indeed, I think it's arguable that without this book, the current state of Murdochian philosophy and Murdochian criticism in general, even beyond the philosophy, would be much the poorer and less informed. So joining me today on the podcast are Justin Brokes from Brown University. Hello, Justin. Hello, good to Hello, be with you. Thanks for coming back on. And we've also got uh, Meredith Trexler-Dries um, with us as well, who's currently based at the University of Notre Dame. Hello, Mer Meredith. Hello, it's an honour to be here with you both. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, you on. Uh, Justin is Professor of Philosophy at Brown, and his present research focuses on issues in metaphysics and the theory of perception and their connections with the history of the subject. His special areas of interest include theory of colour and colour perception from the ancient Greeks to the present. So um, a very short span there. Uh, colour blindness uh, and the notion of substance and what became of that idea in the 17th and 18th centuries and after. Uh, in addition, he's working on a book on Iris Murdoch's The Sovereignty of Good. And he's also editing her monograph on Martin Heidegger as well, which we're excited for both books. And I'm sure we, they may well get a mention later on in the podcast. Meredith is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Kansas Wesleyan University. As I said, she's currently uh, working on Murdoch and Kant at the Centre for Philosophy of Religion at the University of Notre Dame. Her recent book, Aesthetic Experience and Moral Vision in Plato, Kant and Murdoch, Looking Good, Being Good, uh, came out with Palgrave recently, and it presents an extended vision, uh, sorry, an extended version of Iris Murdoch's moral vision. And she's working on the follow up as we speak while she's uh, at Notre Dame. Um, wonderful to have you both um, here to celebrate not just um, this wonderful collection, but also, of course, to reflect on its legacy and to discuss uh, the future of Madokian philosophy and, of course, to think about um, the conference at Notre Dame um, next year. So um, perhaps we could start uh, with a nice um, an easy one, really. And could you tell us about your first introduction to Murdoch and also your first impressions of reading her work? Justin, let's start with you as you've been involved with Murdoch since, oh, at least the turn of the century, I think. Right. Well, I was lucky enough to encounter Iris Murdoch in my first week of work in moral philosophy as an undergraduate. I was taught by John McDowell, and the first week's work involved a crazily large reading list. This was the Oxford tutorial system, mm. and I had to work through eight articles, something like that, and chunks of Hume, and added in there was Iris Murdoch's Sovereignty of Good. Mm. And curiously, I did not, I usually did not go out and buy the books that I was meant to be reading. We had a library. But on this occasion, I did go out and I bought the Sovereignty of Good. And I got about halfway through it. I mean, uh, halfway through the second essay, I still have the rather thorough and uncomprehending notes that I took at the time. <laughs> And it made an impression on me, but an impression of puzzlement, because everything else that I read, I thought I sort of understood, even if I was only beginning in this subject. With Murdoch, I really wasn't sure what I was encountering. I had 
the incredible good fortune to be taught by John McDowell, who mm. was immersing himself in Murdoch, though I didn't realize quite how large the influence was until a later date. But I count myself incredibly lucky to have had this initial exposure, even if I didn't really know what it was that I was being exposed to. And then you found yourself going back to it undergraduate level, or did that just continue into postgraduate? <coughs> I didn't work as such on Murdoch until, well, some 20 years afterwards and more, when the idea of a conference on Murdoch came up at Brown, where by that time I was teaching. Um, it was really quite accidental. I mean, it's extraordinary, I don't know, I mean, yes, it is extraordinary in a way, quite how unqualified I was to <laughs> run a conference on Iris Murdoch. Um, I was marginally more qualified than anybody else in the department, but the fact was, at the moment when the idea of actually running a conference came up, it had been suggested by a donor to the department, an old brown student who had got a great interest in philosophy, who said, I've been giving some money to various conference ideas that the department has put on. I'd like to run something that might have a bit of a broader interest than some of the ones we've had up till now. How about something on Iris Murdoch? And other members of the department said, oh, you know, maybe, I'm not sure it would interest us, but at least it might interest people in other departments. And they were rather graciously condescending and decided <laughs> that it would be you know probably a good thing though they didn't really know quite what kind of a good thing in particular it might be and it turned out nobody in the room had read anything of Murdoch so when I said well I actually had read the sovereignty of good or at least part of the sovereignty of good that got me the job and uh, little did I well I, I felt it would not help to say, oh, by the way, it was in my first week of undergraduate work in mm. moral philosophy, and I don't think I understood it. I kept quiet about that point and decided that I should simply work harder to catch up. And and from that, you know, um, here we are talking about the uh, the collection that sprang from that conference, um, you know, um, 10 years since publication, which is uh, a wonderful thing. Uh, Meredith, tell us a little bit about your first impressions of reading Murdoch's work and, and how you came to um, to be in contact with it. Well, as an undergraduate student, I became fascinated with the connection between beauty and goodness. And at that point, I felt almost as if I had had some sort of vision of inspiration that this is the topic I was going to be working on, you know, for years to come. And one of my undergraduate professors mentioned Murdoch and said, you know, you ought to look into this person's work. And he gave me a castos, the two platonic dialogues. Uh, and so I had the opportunity to read that first. But then as things go, my work took me in different directions. And I started to focus more on the Plato and the Kant aspects of my studies. And I had sort of left Murdoch for a time. And then as a graduate student, I was still pursuing this same topic, looking at the what I felt was sort of an an electable component uh, of morality that's present in aesthetic experience, something that you know is is there, and um, this idea that aesthetic experience and morality can't be divorced from one another. 
And I told my dissertation advisor that I wanted to do my dissertation on Plato and Kant and the overlap between beauty and goodness in those works. Mm. And he said, well, it would be a little odd uh, to try to develop a manuscript connecting those two without some sort of central focus. And I think that we should look at Iris Murdoch. And so she came back into my life again at that point, and he did not have a background in Murdoch, and neither did I, other than having read the little that I had read as an undergrad student. And so we spent the next several years uh, reading Murdoch's work, reading the secondary literature, and then, of course, working on the dissertation. And I have to mention that Iris Murdoch philosopher was the primary resource that I kept looking to during that time because uh, I ran across it just as I was starting to do research on Murdoch. And I found especially the introduction to be so helpful uh, in guiding me in different directions throughout that research, but also of course the essays in the collection. Uh, and I could go on about the ways in which they've inspired other work that I'm doing now. Yeah, and I, it's going to be, um, I think, an important point in the in the podcast to discuss, you know, the the legacy of of the collection, and also kind of um, circle back round to um, what you're doing at Notre Dame and, and talk about not just your research, but kind of the the inspiration that you're getting from um, from the uh, postgraduate students there as well, which would be great. Justin, could you tell us a little bit more about the conference? Obviously, it's a, a long time ago to cast your mind back to uh, 2001. Um, but it, looking through the uh, the list of um, contributors to the volume, it seems as if you managed to kind of gather the, the great and the good of those working on Murdoch at, at that particular point in time. Well, I was extremely lucky. Um, I consulted a couple of colleagues, and in particular Martha Nussbaum, who helped a lot. I found my way to really some some wonderful speakers for the conference. Um, the people who came included Peter Conradi, Richard Moran, Carla Bagnoli, Roger Crisp, Julia Driver, Martha mm. Nussbaum, Bridget Clark. We also had, because one speaker dropped out at more or less the last minute, we had Maria Antonaccio, who came and talked about um, metaphysics as a guide to morals. And we also had a group presentation, which was with Stanley Rosen, and Larry Blum and Martha Nussbaum presenting passages from Murdoch that they particularly found interesting. And I also was incredibly lucky that Peter Conradi had come with a small treasure that he was um, still a little bit unsure whether he really necessarily wanted to part with at all, but he gave me the opening pages of Murdoch's unfinished book on Heidegger, and he said I could read aloud the first five or six pages of that, and then I had to give it back to him to be sure that it was properly taken care of, and mm -hmm. I didn't keep a photocopy of it, and um, we were, this was the first airing, I think, in the world of this um, really fascinating discussion of Heidegger. And did it go down well in the room at the time? Do you remember? 
it most certainly did. It, you know, it's got some wonderful things in it. Um, you know, among other things, a comment upon how the world, the philosophical world of the time that she was thinking of seemed to divide into those who particularly took Heidegger as a guide and those who took Wittgenstein as a guide. And she, well, there will soon, I hope, be the full uh, text of her writing on this and uh, not just the first chapter, which, which I was able to put into the collection when it actually appeared. But I should say there were a good handful of other people who I wish had been able to come. There were people I wrote to, it included Cora Diamond, John McDowell, Philippa Foote, Stanley Cavell, and Alistair McIntyre. And if only a few of those would have come, well, it would have, um, it would have been a, well, a stunningly good way of honoring a really quite amazing philosophical achievement that those people knew so much more about than some of the rest of us who are now working in that field. Well, I, I think, yes, per perhaps that, that that's true, but I still think you managed to assemble what is at the time a, a fantastic, a fantastic lineup. Could you say a little bit about um the development of the collection obviously it took um a good decade or so to get the get the work into print um and i think one from what we've discussed before it wasn't just about corralling um other philosophers to produce their their material for publication but it was also about the development of what is i think still the uh, the, the go-to piece on the uh, the introduction to murdoch's philosophy which you wrote and i think that was you you wrote that just for this collection didn't you i did i first proposed a collection of essays which was fairly close in format to the conference, though it had a couple of extra items in it, including, let me see, Larry Blum's article on visual metaphors in Murdoch's moral philosophy and Margaret Holland's um, essay on obstacles to freedom. But I have to say, the collection was turned down by Oxford when we first proposed it. Mm. There were plenty of things that I think we could improve. Um, at the time, some of the essays took the form of replies to other people's stuff. So there had been five main talks and some of the other speakers had been giving replies to those principal talks. And what I worked to do was to get those articles um, beefed up to being full-scale pieces of their own. But the fact was, I also took this opportunity of simply training myself, giving myself a complete new education, according to Murdoch's model. So there I was just saying to myself, okay, if I'm going to be any good at working on Murdoch, what do I need to read? And I read Kierkegaard and the Symposium and some Heidegger, some Hegel, Freud, um, some socialist and Marxist writing. And I found it endlessly well, more than fascinating. I mean, fascinating, of course, in Iris Murdoch is a 
a dangerous word. I shouldn't really say fascinating in her sense. I found it absolutely, well, the education that I wish I'd had, no, I actually don't necessarily wish I'd had it earlier. I'm particularly glad that I had it when I had it. Mm. <clears throat> and that it was so completely involving. And it took years, but I, I have here, I just looked back at my, some of the work that I did at that time. And in the year 2003, I can see that to six of the contributors, I wrote 36 pages of single spaced comments. Uh, so that's roughly six pages of single spaced comments on 20 page articles. And on some of them, I'm working through details of Freud's classification of neuroses and Freud's classification of psychoses. And I've really been trying to work out, well, if one was going to supplement what people have been doing already, what would one need to supplement it with? And I, I've completely thrown myself into this. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of the contributors were completely mad at me and just thought, why doesn't he keep his nose out of my work? I mean, I <laughs> write my article. It's his job to write his yeah. introduction and bring us together. It's not his job to attempt to tell us what things we don't already know about. Um, unfortunately, I took on that particular role and I decided, look, Murdoch actually, well, I, I mean, I kept thinking, I've been appointed to this task and it's so obvious. I mean, people talk sometimes about, you know, imposter syndrome. This was not an imposter syndrome as a pathology. This was simply an accurate presentation of my existence. My presentation, I mean, my moment in that position was one um, where I really was not properly qualified for the task, but I was qualified to learn to take on the task. I was qualified to educate myself and make myself qualified for the task. And it took me years to do it. And so I would ask myself constantly, what's going on in this paragraph of the sovereignty of good? And then I would spend two or three days running out to the bookshops of Cambridge or to Widener Library to, I'm talking Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm. where I just by the edge of Harvard University. And I would find myself throwing myself into, I mean, you know, there's a moment where Murdoch says in brackets about the difficult, oh, she's just been talking about the difficulties that some kind of sadomasochism can ruin our understanding of the good. And sometimes there are false goods that dress themselves up as if they are something good. Then she puts in brackets, Kafka's fight with the devil, which ends up in bed. And I thought to myself, what on earth is that about? And I thought, right, well, I need to go and read Kafka. So I went out and I managed to find a secondhand copy of the trial. And this was nine o'clock at night one night. I next day managed to go to the international bookshop and buy a little boxed set in German of the novels of Kafka. And three days later, I thought I had an answer to the question, what all of this has to do with Kafka? And I wrote it down. And so my commentary on the sovereignty of good grew. And so my plan for an introduction also grew. But if I can just add one extra thing, when it came to the introduction, I did have one, in my mind, quite important task that I wanted to achieve, which was to change, or at least to provide one extra perspective. People in the year 2000 looked 
back at Iris Murdoch, having known her in her later life. Mm. I mean, many people had seen the film Iris. Uh, people had known her as a novelist. The fact that she had once been a philosopher was something in the distant past. What I wanted to do was to look at Murdoch from the beginning of her life, to see her as a person who chose philosophy as her first career and who made that career, I thought, extremely successfully, a person who was fantastically well-received in the subject, but then, I thought, had a slightly tense and uncomfortable relationship with some of her um, environment in the subject. Professional philosophy was something that she took to more easily, I think, in the early 50s than she did in the early 60s. And I wanted to tell that story and to tell it from the beginning forwards, rather than to let people just make it a sort of add-on to the end of her life vision that they had most easily. And I think that was absolutely essential for the for the time, wasn't it? As the kind of the the secondary criticism of Murdoch, perhaps at two thousand and one in its infancy. Obviously, we've got the uh, the Antonaccio collection and 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 her monograph, but very little else. Obviously, by the, by the time twenty twelve rolls around, there is there is far more. But this really did, I think, um, set the scene for the the the, the ten years from twenty twelve um, to where we are today. Meredith, you, you said how important that this collection was to you, and you, you did, um, you know, kept, kept referring back to uh, Justin's introduction. Obviously, he is on the call with us, so we don't want to give him too much, um, you know, too, too much of an ego rub, but I'm sure there's plenty that we could say about how wonderful it is. Um, tell it, what did you what did you take from the collection, and, and did you pick it up when it first came out, or was it something that you discovered on the library shelves? It was something I discovered a little bit later, but it was crucial to my progress uh, as a philosopher today. And one thing that comes to my mind uh, is that Iris Murdoch, when I first encountered her, reminded me of Sappho. And uh, the reason is that much like Sappho, Murdoch approaches her writing in an unconventional sort of manner, at least different from a lot of her mostly male contemporaries of the time. And so did Sappho. And Sappho is underappreciated. And uh, in my view, Murdoch has been as well. And I think the introduction in particular, but also the entire book helps us to see Murdoch as a philosopher, just as the title expresses, but gives us that sense of the depths and the brilliance of her work uh, and allows us to make our own shift in perspective and, and truly see her uh, and what she did, uh, not only as a novelist, but as, as a true philosopher. Um, and so that's that's one thing that I, I tend to think about when I reflect on my first encounter with the book uh, and then my first encounter with Murdoch. Um, in terms of the essays, the compilation uh, and the organization of the book, I think, is absolutely fantastic. And as I was going through, it, I was so excited because I seemed to find a new direction for research uh, almost on every page uh, as I was, you know, first becoming acquainted with this material. And one of the things that really struck me, and I think probably changed my life as a philosopher, uh, was encountering John Bailey's memoir and the last paragraph. Um, so the piece, Iris on Safari. And I thought to myself as I read that paragraph, Iris 
exemplifies the thesis in metaphysics as a guide to morals here. She, in her own life, connects metaphysics and ethics in this unique way um, and is proof that this, this good that she discusses throughout her work uh, may exist not only you know, in the world, but also in a person. And I have to admit that when I first read that paragraph, it brought me to tears. Um, just because at that point, you know, I had learned more about her life story and then had also begun to think about this relationship with my own work. And it was particularly moving, as were many of, of the other essays throughout the collection. Do you see that then as, as part, also part of the legacy of the collection, that it doesn't just um, provide us with a, I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's not totalizing of course it, it can't be Murdoch is far too vast and and varied varied for that but it gives us an insight into different aspects of the uh, of the work but also connects it with the life and as you say in in Bailey's um Bailey's uh it's, it's a personal a personal record of, of Murdoch and working with Murdoch um that it connects with the the life in a particular way as well to, to sort of humanize uh, the person behind the philosophy Yes, I definitely think that through this book, um, we see the human behind the philosophy, but the philosophy itself embodied. And I think that this is something Murdoch is trying to do uh, that distinguishes her from other philosophers. And it has, has also been, I think, the reason that some people have turned away from her work. Um, individuals, you know, when, who encountered me at the beginning, when I mentioned I was studying Murdoch, they said, oh, well, her work is all over the place. How do you, uh, you know, tie things together? How do you understand what she's doing? Mm. And I think that, that perspective um, should be changed. Uh, and I think the book helps us to do that. We need to see that Murdoch's approach is actually allowing her to develop this different kind of uh, philosophical view and to present it in a way that uh, maybe we haven't encountered in the past. Uh, and so I think that the philosophy itself um, in particular is highlighted throughout the volume and her exemplification of the philosophy that she argued for. And she helps us to pick up the, the threads from the two earlier philosophers as well. Yes, she does. And uh, I think that you know individuals who have supposed that linking Plato and Kant uh, is challenging. Um, perhaps they're correct in some ways, but also uh, through reading Murdoch, we see the links that are naturally there uh, between those, those two philosophies. And I think it's no coincidence that she draws them out in the way that she does, and that it, in fact, moves both of their views forward uh, in such a way that develops them into something quite unique and, and really quite brilliant. One of the things that, if I could take up one of the one of the things that you mentioned about the way she, I think, employs a kind of writing that can leave many readers a bit disconcerted. That um, I mean, there are some readers who are not remotely disconcerted by reading Aris Murdoch, to whom. I mean, they take to it like a duck to water. There are other people, particularly those brought up on a particular style of philosophical writing, who say, where are the arguments? And actually, I think there are tons of arguments in Murdoch, but one of the difficulties is that, one of the difficulties is that she often gives us 
almost too many in a single paragraph. There are so many things going on to work out which are the ones that are going to be central for, so to speak, the main line of development and which are going to be incidental to the main line of development. That takes very careful reading and a lot of patience and quite a lot of work. So it's one of the reasons, I mean, I think there are very, very, very few philosophers who actually need and benefit from having literally a commentary. I mean, by a commentary, the kind of thing that takes paragraph by paragraph or sentence by sentence, explanations of particular words, particular structures of what's being said and so on, that kind of thing, which people write on, you know, the text of Homer or the text of Shakespeare, you know, that's not the kind of thing we generally do on a philosophical text, though sometimes it's been done, you know, for Wittgenstein's Tractatus, for and there are commentaries, but for most recent, well, certainly for 20th century philosophical writing, people have mostly thought it's really not necessary and it wouldn't be useful. But for Murdoch, it is useful and it is, I think, necessary. And I think it's actually quite rewarding. So that's that's why I moved on to the second task as well. And but I think placing her in her age, placing her with, you know, the environment, um, I think it's also very important when you're talking about things like the style of philosophical writing, it, it, it won't make sense unless one recognizes what it's to be set against, what it's, what's the environment like, what are people like her writing, how is she refusing to go on and write in the same style as them, and well, how do we get the best out of it while she's doing it? So that was the, in a certain sense, it was beginning on that task, beginning to put her in her context in such a way that the philosophical work really could emerge and the stature of that work could emerge. That was the task I set myself. Many philosophers, so to speak, imagine that they don't need to be put in a context. You know, they, they just write, so to speak, as normal people. Murdoch evidently does not just write as a normal, so to speak, colorless male academic philosopher. Yeah. And I think it's... Um, important that we should regard the work of putting her in the right context as as good work, as normal work. Not, you know, it's not as though she's making an unreasonable demand if she needs to be put in that context. On the contrary, we should be questioning, so to speak, the normality of the other work too. I agree. I agree. And I think that your introduction has helped us to see that quite clearly. And to come on to, I guess, what your, your the current work you're working on, Justin, obviously we have a about 40 pages of introduction to the sovereignty of good as part of your introduction in this collection, but you obviously felt that wasn't enough and you are producing um, and, and getting towards um, the climax, I think, of the, uh, the, the commentary on the sovereignty of good. Could you say a little bit about that and, uh, and what we might expect when we, when we finally are able to purchase our own copy? Sure, yes, well, it, exists in pretty much a complete form now. Um, it, in the printout I have in front of me, it's 420 pages long. Um, it contains... Substantial. <laughs> <laughs> so it contains summaries of the text, but then sort of taking up particular words, particular ideas, um, trying to bring you in touch with 
the background concerns that she would have had. So if she mentions Kafka, what's she alluding to in Kafka? Not everybody can spend three days when they come across one sentence in Murdoch reading Kafka all over again. So I try to summarize, um, actually, as it was the trial and what she might have got out of it as a sort of thematic background to that particular comment. And I do this a hundred times over, maybe more than that, for a hundred and more little, little nuggets of puzzlement that grabbed me. Wow. And, th and that's been several years in production, hasn't it? It must have been. It's been it's been years in production. I'm adding, I have added to it a guide to reading, which also, um, you know, it's an attempt for people who want to use Murdoch's work in lecture rooms, you know, if they were going to create a syllabus where they were going to talk about Kant, Plato, Wittgenstein, Simone Weil, Marx, Freud, Sartre, Heidegger, Hegel, what might they use if they couldn't just say, well, we'll spend a whole term on each of them, what might they do if they just have a week or two to do that? And then I've attempted to survey, well, even some of the things that Murdoch engaged with in Buddhism. Um, it's, you know, well, it's constantly stretching my own competence, but I found it just an ideal education. So I hope that other people will want to follow up these things as I had great delight in following them up myself. And I'm sure we will and look, look forward to that coming um, in, the, in the future. Obviously, we um... let me add one extra on, thing. Please. There will be, with any luck, a preface or introduction. Uh, Miklos Vetter was. I imagine Iris Murdoch's last philosophy PhD, or rather DPhil student mm, in was, Oxford. Yeah. And he actually offered to me, he's no longer alive, I'm sorry to say, but we met a number of times and I translated some of his work in, from French into English. He was Hungarian by origin, but he wrote in French in his later career. And I translated some of his stuff into English and he actually asked if there might be a suitable place for an English publication of a piece that he wrote on the sovereignty of good. And I said, well, any chance you would let me use it as an introductional preface to my own commentary? And he said, yes, he would like that. So this is in fact the introduction that he wrote for the Hungarian translation of the sovereignty of good. Uh, so it's appeared for readers of Hungarian, it's available already, but I have translated it into English and I'm hoping that it will appear as the whatever foreword or whatever to uh, my own commentary. Well, that's wonderful. a lovely piece. What, what, what a tribute. And we were obviously um, delighted to have him with us at the Centenary Conference in 2019, um, which was a, a very special moment. I know that um, both of you were involved in, in that, uh, in, in his talk. And I suppose there's, there's so much richness that already in, in this discussion. I think it's quite difficult as well to think about the legacy of um, of the collection and Meredith we've touched a little bit on on your work on on Murdoch and Kant but I wonder since obviously you've been working on Murdoch for a, a few years on the um on the, the book on aesthetic experience and moral vision that's just come out and you're continuing to work on Murdoch and Kant at uh, Notre Dame 
Um, perhaps this might be a, a slightly unfair question, but how do you see Murdoch's um, reputation developing in philosophy, perhaps in, in the US or perhaps more widely? Obviously, there's been a lot of material um, coming out in the last um, eight, ten years since the publication of this of this collection. I wonder if you kind of see an upswing in interest and and who might be interested in Murdoch at the time at, um, at this particular point. Yes, there's definitely an uptick in the interest in her work, and, and I do think it was sparked by this particular collection, and uh, I felt really fortunate that my studies of Murdoch actually happened to sort of come about right at the right time, uh, right when this interest in Murdoch is taking off, uh, and I've noticed that other students um, that I've encountered at various universities where I've given presentations uh, have taken an interest in Murdoch, and when they learn that I'm working on this subject, they uh, become very excited, sort of approach me. Uh, I gave a talk at Rutgers earlier this year, uh, and I was uh, one among uh, several other philosophers there. And, and the students came up to me and they said, we're, we're just especially interested in Iris Murdoch. We don't know much about her, um, but this idea of unselfing seems you know so fascinating to us can you tell us a little more about that and so you sort of see students eyes light up uh, when it comes to the ideas of attention the ideas of unselfing um, Murdoch's theory of love and here at Notre Dame actually before I came on campus uh, a group of graduate students had started a reading group on the sovereignty of good and those students have uh, been in contact with me and we've collaborated a little bit. Uh, some of them are writing independent papers on Murdoch. And so we've been able to discuss our work and they hope to continue the reading group into the spring. And uh, I hope that you know some of the work that I'm doing here will indeed help with uh, their interest and to, to forward that into the future. And uh, so I've seen that in students. I also see it in colleagues, although um, I've noticed that many times uh, colleagues haven't read Murdoch or are just beginning to find an interest in Murdoch. And uh, a lot of people, you know, if they have read her work, it's usually her novels. Um, and I think now, of course, after the publication of, of like I said, this, this collection, we see more interest in her philosophy and maybe even in uh, the overlap between her novels and her philosophy. And I know, Miles, you've done work in that area as well with, with your book. Um, and so I think that you know, there's a, there are a lot of different areas that have been open for investigation over the last eight to 10 years. Mm. People are seeing that. Yeah, I think it's interesting, uh, just, just having a quick flick through the book. Um, in part six of Justin's introduction to it is uh, called Murdoch's Afterthoughts, What Remains to Be Done? And I think that's a lovely moment, actually, to reflect on whether what remained to be done in 2012 has actually been done or is being done. Um, obviously, in the last few years, we've we've had some uh, wonderful publications come out, not least, of course, The Madokian Mind, which came out um, earlier this year, um, which I think is its own kind of milestone in Madokian thought and criticism, not obviously not just for, for philosophy, but for theology, um, associated humanity studies and literature as well, though, of course, it is primarily philosophical. Justin, what do you what do you see um, that's kind of uh, happened in the last 10 years that maybe has, has, has uh, ticked off some of the uh, of the to do list for um, what remains to be done? Well, there's been an absolute explosion of work on Murdoch. Um, I think 
you know, it's so exciting that those two group biographies of Anscombe, Foote, Murdoch and Midgley came out earlier this year. They have unearthed, the authors have unearthed huge amounts of value, really valuable material which makes it possible to understand so much better what was being done that I think was really distinctively a woman's work, work being done. I mean, I have in a footnote of mine, I'm, you know, in the, in the introduction, the moment where Iris Murdoch is heading back to Cambridge and she right after a few days in Oxford in something like 1947 when she's um, doing her one year of graduate work in Cambridge before she becomes a fellow of St Anne's and uh, she's seen Pip Philippa Foote and Elizabeth Anscombe and I think Mary Midgley. She says, a world of women, how I love them all. And it seemed to me, and well, it seemed to me at the time when I was writing about this, that it was clear that this was a women's group doing things that really women could only at that moment easily do together. And the ways that that is an important part of the story seem to me to have been just hugely more clarified, brought into the open and explained in detail through work in the 10 years that have followed. I think that's put us in a position to understand better what kind of a movement in the philosophical world. I mean, so to speak, one's not just doing philosophy, one is doing philosophy in a philosophical world. Mm. One is, uh, you know, one is exerting a pressure, which is a pressure upon people to do certain kinds of things. And the Murdoch, Anscombe, Foote, Midgley contribution to the subject is a contribution of people to people doing things. And it seems to me that now we are in an age where the true value of that influence is really, really coming to the fore. I am just so thrilled at the existence of the Murdochian Minds, this wonderful collection edited by Sylvia Capridolio Panitza and Mark Hopwood. It seems to me you know, it's a, it's just obvious that that's a collection that could not have been brought into existence 12 years ago. There yep. wouldn't have been enough people doing that kind of work to have brought together such a fine volume. Um, I am, you know, just immense. Well, I just think it's a tremendous thing that the book exists, but it's also a tremendous thing that the work in the world exists that gives rise to a book like that. Yes. I think we can ref reflect um, on your continuing work as well Mer uh, Meredith what you're doing at uh, Notre Dame could you say a little bit more about how you're moving forward with your work on Murdoch and Kant from the previous book and, and talk to us about uh, how you're kind of be um, you know developing your ideas and, and perhaps and, and I'm sure um, using these new publications as well yes well one of the elements of the previous book um, that seems to come up many times when I'm discussing the work with others is um, what you might call the paradox of the selfless self in Iris Murdoch. And so you know, once one has unselfed or is in this process of unselfing and has progressed along that path, um, what is left uh, of the self? 
And my book, the 2021 book, aims to address that question by providing kind of a two-tiered selfless perspective, which is an extension uh, of Murdoch's view where I talk specifically about the addition of a higher self. And I'm drawing on Plato and I'm drawing on Kant, but I also have um, some sort of religious motivations there as I, as I make the argument for that view. And so my view is an amended and partially extended version of Murdochian moral vision, where um, I suggest that when we unself, we're moving to kind of a higher version of ourselves. And so what it is to become moral, to make that Murdochian moral pilgrimage, uh, to make it out of the cave, so to speak, or at least to progress toward the opening of the cave uh, is to progress toward this higher version of the self. And one of the areas in which this progression uh, seems to be particularly possible uh, is a return to Kant's religion. And, you know, as we know, Kant inspires Murdoch, uh, and in particular in her aesthetics and, and ethics. Um, and the affirmative approach to Kant's religion is something that has been put forward uh, over the last decade or so. The idea of looking at Kant uh, as if he is trying to understand religion, to affirmatively interpret it, uh, and that we as interpreters want to affirm his positive beliefs in religion. And uh, I have been studying this affirmative approach and uh, reading Kant's religion and looking at overlap between his work and Murdoch's, but also uh, as I have investigated the Kantian ethical community, uh, the notion of the prototype of moral perfection uh, and ideas of, of this kind in Kant's religion, I have uh, started to argue, I'm in the beginning stages of this, um, that Kant's religion is an optimal area of life in which Murdochian moral vision can be cashed out. And I'm not saying it's the only way, but it could be a prime place uh, for us to take on a life where looking good is being good, which is part of the title of that first book. Um, and so looking good is not appearing good, but first the Murdochian idea of looking and truly seeing and paying attention to others is being good, which, which of course Murdoch would, would agree with that point. Um, but also there are aspects of Plato, Kant and Murdoch um, where we might be drawn to study the, the appearance of a beautiful person or the appearance of beautiful art. So there's sort of a play on words there with the looking good being good um, title. But the idea that this could take place in our lives in a particular kind of let's say ethical community uh, or a place where we are truly seeing others and others are inspiring us to progress toward moral perfection, whether or not we can achieve it. Uh, but again, it's that striving. And I often like to use the analogy of you know, horsemanship. I grew up showing horses. And so that example comes to my mind. But when a person is, is showing a horse or riding a horse, uh, one is constantly thinking, am I sitting up straight? Could I sit up a little bit more? 
Um, could I improve my posture? And I think this is very akin to what Murdoch is telling us to do. Could we, could we constantly you know, improve our perspective? Um, this idea of perfection that we're seeking, uh, this idea of becoming good, this idea of, of discovering our moral nature and, and really attending to the world is something that we're continuously working at. Uh, and the Kantian ethical community may give us a place where we're inspired to do so and also um, an idea of perfection, which may be very different from Murdoch's own because in the Kantian sense, it is cashed out as a perfect person. Um, and of course, Murdoch has um, issues with that sort of perspective because of her idea of consolation uh, when it comes to goodness. And so she doesn't want the good to console us. And she believes that God uh, or a perfect person personifying that, that perfection uh, would in fact do that and maybe promote uh, a fantasy of happiness that we in fact uh, need to uh, release from our perspective uh, and, and sort of decreate our egos to use that term from Simone Weil. Um, we need to let go of that fantasy. But my work uh, argues that or aims to show that we could bring that personified version of, of the good back in um, in some ways and then and help to move this view forward and that Kant's religion may be an avenue for doing so. So uh, I actually begun that I've, I've started that work in my first book. And then in my second book, I'm looking more specifically at various topics that came out of the final chapter of that 2021 book. And so uh, one of the things that I'm investigating now is the concept of sacrifice and the sublime in Kant and Murdoch. And that uh, was actually inspired by some of the work in the introduction to Iris Murdoch philosopher, uh, where Justin, you talk about some of Murdoch's criticisms of Kant's theory of art. And that led me to investigate that topic uh, in more detail and to go on and read things like the sublime of the good and, uh, and looking at even the Nussbaum essay in the collection uh, and the work there on the Black Prince uh, led me to think more about Murdoch's view of sublimity. And uh, one of the chapters of my current book considers sacrifice in Kant as a way of uh, possibly responding to some of Murdoch's criticisms of the Kantian sublime and the notion of octung. Uh, that she discusses in those two essays. And so uh, I argue that one of the analogies uh, between sublimity and morality that we might find in Kant comes through the notion of sacrifice, the sacrifice of the imagination when the sublime is encountered. And through this um, analysis, I discuss a way in which Kant's sublimity may be pointing us more toward humility um, and less toward pride. And that in this way, it may indeed help us uh, to reach the state that Murdoch wants us to reach when we encounter tragedy. Again, that decreation of the ego, that um, facing death that she wants us to see. Uh, and it may even, in fact, be in the sacrifice of the idea of perfection that Kant talks about in the religion um, that we encounter this tragedy. And so if we tie together Kant's religion and his uh, aesthetics, we can see this even more clearly. Uh, and so that's one of the topics that's actually 
really fascinated me in this current work. But I'm also looking at uh, Murdoch and Kant on forgiveness and uh, love and the ego. And uh, a lot of my work actually centers on this idea of the perfect person uh, that Kant presents in the religion. Goodness, I'm, that's there's, there's so much richness there. I feel that uh, in the future, perhaps sometime next year, we're going to need a, uh, a podcast just on uh, Murdoch and Kant. Justin, I'm sure you've got some thoughts and want to respond to uh, some of those ideas that, that Meredith is developing. I, I would only say it sounds an absolutely fascinating project. I think the bringing out in particular of the idea of perfection as it shows up in Kant is obviously um, very, very um, important work. I would love to see how it turns out. Thank you. Well, I am also anxious to see how it turns out. <laughs> it's in <it is> progress. <laughs> And as, and, and as part of the uh, the process of the working out, I guess, and the, the developmental process, you are organising two conferences uh, next year at Notre Dame. One on Kant, which is, when is that happening, by the way? That one is happening on March 31st and April 1st, and it's right. on the alternative approach to Kant's religion. Right. And then I guess the one that um, I'm most excited about, because I'm, I'm uh, you know, fingers crossed going to be with you, um, one on uh, Murdoch as well. Yes, and that's happening this summer. Uh, it is called Iris Murdoch uh, Transatlantic Ties. And we're very excited because uh, we will have Miles herself uh, as one of our key speakers, Megan Laverty, Anne Rowe, Kieran Satia. Uh, they will be with us. We are also um, inviting abstracts. Um, we have a call for papers that we'll be sending out soon. And we're looking for um, work on connections uh, to Murdoch outside the UK, but we welcome work um, on any topic on Murdoch. And this is going to be, I believe, one of the first conferences in 10 years in the United States on Murdoch. Is that right? I think it's the first since the conference at Brown in 2001. So in fact, over 20 years, Justin, would that be a fair comment? I think that's true, yes. Yeah, I remember there was one in Canada in 2019, but um, as far as the US goes, I think it's been over 20 years since there was a, a, a singular Murdoch conference. So perhaps it's, um, well, overdue, not just timely, but overdue, perhaps. Um, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you both today. And um, as, as you've both pointed out, there's so much richness in this collection. Um, it is um, still available. Uh, it's in print from OUP, and you can pick it up um very reasonably in paperback indeed there are links to uh to meredith's new book and to justin's collection um both in the uh in the in the description box for the podcast um just below so you can click on those and um, and have a look through them obviously we um look forward to justin's work uh coming on heidegger um the uh, the edited uh, manuscript as well as some other material as well i think justin as well that uh, hopefully will be going in that's right. I am um, hoping I have uh, that, that you podcast listeners know this even before the publishers know this, but I am hoping <laughs> that I may be able to smuggle into a volume, into this volume, also an essay of Iris Murdoch's unpublished before on the ontological argument uh, for the existence of God. Um, it's so far sat only in a university archive, and I've 
found it out and uh, would like to present it to the world together with the Heidegger typescript. So this should be an exciting thing for everybody who loves Murdoch's work. Absolutely. And it's quite a substantial chapter as well, isn't it? The, uh, the ontological material. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. This may be, I haven't been 100% able to verify whether this is the very same version of her work, but she was, she planned an essay on the ontological argument to contribute to a volume of essays in honour of Philippa Foote. As it happened, I believe it was turned down what she submitted to them. Peter Conradi tells a bit of the story in his memoir. And um, I believe, at any rate, this is a very substantial piece of work on the ontological argument, and it should really help with our reading of On God and Good, the second essay of The Sovereignty of Good. Wonderful, obviously, together with your commentary um, that will be also coming, uh, I think, a little bit later. So um, hopefully within a, a year or so, we'll be able to hold the, the Heidegger manuscript in our hands with uh, with uh, with luck and a fair wind alongside that wonderful uh, new essay that's uh, that's been discovered in the, I think, at the uh, University of Iowa. So um, my thanks um, to uh, to Meredith Trexlides and, of course, huge thanks as ever to Justin Brokes, not just for being on the podcast, but also for the sterling work that he's done over the, the last 20 years. And, we, and thank you all very much for listening to the podcast.